Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. I'm down here in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas, at the Museum of Discovery. And it's just a wonderful scientific example museum. I'm sure you can hear the kids in the background having a, a great time. But as we went through the anatomy exhibit, I'm reminded that we all for the most part, have the same organs, but they're all different sizes. Some structures are different. We have, some of us have more blood than others. And as I look at the brain, I see that the structures are different, sizes are different. And it just reminded me that we all are different, but not different in a bad way. We're different by being unique. And we should keep that in mind when we interact with each other, to know that we're not all the same. Even situations that we have that may be similar to each other aren't the same. So let's celebrate our uniqueness. Let's celebrate our individuality. And be kind to each other. Because remember, you are valuable, you are loved, you're important, and you're unique. everybody, Doc Brian, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today with me, I have Samuel Abraham Perez, and uh, he's got quite the interesting story and and somewhat controversial, I would say, within some of our, our Christian religion. Uh, so Samuel, it's it's good to have you have you with us here today. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Now, where are you located? Where are you at? Um, right now, I am in Miami, Florida. It's actually the place where I grew up in, but I've I've traveled the world, and so it's a little bit of my testimony. <laughs> so you're kind of in the uh, fair weather state down there. Of the, uh, I, I remember I went down there one time, and all I saw was orange trees. Wherever I was at, was just oranges everywhere. I think that's probably northern northern Florida because uh, there's not a lot of orange trees down here specifically, especially Miami because it's more of the city. But yeah, yeah. I think like up north, it's it's more farming and orange trees. <laughs> yeah, it was it was literally oranges everywhere, and um, it was crazy. But those were were different times. Um, and we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. So you were born in Miami, raised in that area. Is that what you said? Yes. So I was born and raised here. My parents are immigrants from Cuba. They traveled from Cuba to Venezuela and then from Venezuela to America. Yeah, we were we were born here. I was born 1996, so I'm 25 now. <laughs> Time goes by quick. It does go by quick. And I always have to, as you just did, I always have to think about how old exactly I am. And there was a couple of years where I thought I was way younger than I actually was. Yeah, that's, I mean, the older I get, the more I realize, like, my body is just, like, giving out. <laughs> and I hate it. I was just working out today, and, like, my bicep was, like, on fire. And I was like, what is going on with this yeah. body? Like, I can't wait to get my glorified body because yeah. it's going to be great. <laughs> you know how to fix that bicep from burning, right? I think it's, like, it's some type of, a like, muscle issue that I got going on. I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and so somebody, like, hurt me there, and I just need to rest. 
Well, the the easiest way to make it quit hurting is to stop going to the gym. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, were you only child, brother, sisters? I'm the youngest of my siblings, and so um, I have my older sister and then my my brother, and then I'm the youngest one. Okay. How many years is there between your you and your middle sibling? Uh, we're all pretty close. Like my sister, she's uh, 1992. My brother's 1994 and I'm 1996. So I think we're like two years, three years apart. Okay. So they were still in the home when you were being raised. It wasn't like they had grown up and moved on while you were. Yeah, definitely not. They, we, we all grew up together and stuff. And it wasn't until recently that all of us started leaving the house. I was the first, it's funny because I was the youngest, but I was the first one to leave the house. And then now I'm back at my parents' house and they all left. So it was like weird the way that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> I was the first one to leave and then the first one to come back. And then they all left. And then now I'm just here. So being from Cuba, because I, I do know there are some ethnicities that the children aren't really, I shouldn't say approved, but it's not looked good upon if a child leaves before they're married, is that kind of a tradition there with your family as well? Well, definitely. Yeah. Especially in, in Cuba, we find a lot of people who, um, they'll just stay with their parents. And so like, for example, my, my aunt, she still lives with her mom and they're like, she has like a whole nother like little side house for them and stuff. So it's traditional to just like have a very close knit relationship with your family. Yeah. It, it's like, you don't leave unless like you have a partner and, like in Miami, even in the culture from Cuba, it's like people who leave without partner. It's like I, it, that's more American than it is like Latino. Sure. Sure. So to share just a little bit of your story before we get into it, you struggle with same sex attraction. And it and one point was even a, a gay stripper, if I'm remembering correctly. And now you are, um, as, as you put it, a Jesus influencer. So tell me a little bit about how you knew like the very first time that you you dealt with that same-sex attraction that really kind of made you realize what was going on in your life well i remember having like dreams it was weird like there was like sexually attracted dreams when i was a little boy about another boy that i went to church with and i remember thinking like this is weird like in the dream i still remember the dream <laughs> i was like really young but in the dream, he like took off his shirt and like, he was all sweaty. And I, I was like, Oh, something's happening here. And so I kind of like ignored those feelings of same sex attraction when I was growing up, because I knew that it was like, my church would tell me that this is a wrong thing. And in Miami, this was something that you do not talk about. Like it is extremely just, you don't, you don't touch that subject, especially the time when I grew up now it's, it's very different now, but I was bullied a lot in school. And, and it was mostly because a lot of people thought I was gay, but I myself didn't even say that I was gay yet. It was just other people in school, like just bullying me and just being like, you're gay, you're gay. And I remember middle school when I started feeling attracted first time to another man that wasn't in my dream was in, was in middle school with my best friend. And uh, he basically just texted me every single day. And we would have these conversations and he was really interested in the same type of music that I was into and something from that relationship just made me really, really attracted to him and to the point where I was like, am I gay? Am I homosexual? Like, do I like this guy? And I came to the conclusion that, yeah, that I, I liked other men because I, I, I never had any type of attraction towards like women. And up until that point, I didn't really have any attractions towards guys. Like I, I was nervous around them and I saw them like sort of like, uh, like appealing, but it wasn't until I had my best friend that I was like, oh, like 
I have serious feelings for this guy. Like, and they're like, these thoughts are not leaving my head. And all I can think about him all day is like, I just think about him all day and stuff. And so that happened in middle school when I was in eighth grade. And yeah, nothing really came out of that relationship either. It's kind of like a heartbreaking story, but um, people can like listen to it on my YouTube because I, I go into like full detail of my testimony. It's very long. <laughs> so that best friend was really your first same-sex attraction, but when did you realize that it was more than attraction, that it was a sexual desire? Because I, I think it's fair to say there's a difference between being attracted and having a sexual attraction. I don't know. Maybe you might want to explain that out because to me, I think those things are like, well, the, I, the desire would be like, this is something that I want. And then the attraction is something that I can't help. Right. Right. Like, um, and so I definitely never desired the same sex attraction. It wasn't something that like someone just comes out and is like, I want this for my life because of all the opposition that you're going to face. And so I, did not want to admit it to myself at all. Like I didn't even want to admit that I had the attractions. I had to remember I was in the shower one day and I was just thinking about like, am I gay? Do, do I have these feelings? And I was like, just denying. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want these feelings until I was like, you kind of have to accept that you're having these feelings because they're not going away. I never really wanted to be gay. And even when I did come out to my best friend and my mom and my dad, I still had this like inner feeling of just like, I don't want this for my life, but it is just a reality. And I asked and I prayed God to take it away. Like so many times, even before my best friend, like I was like, what is these things that I'm feeling and these attractions I'm feeling like, Lord, please help me take this away. And he never did. And so uh, a lot of people, they would, they would give up their faith at that point. Just be like, well, God's, God's not real. Cause like I prayed and like, he didn't do anything, but I was just like trying to figure out, I'm like, I know God loves me. I know he's real. I don't know why he's not taking this away. And I don't even want this thing, but I just have it. So I don't think I ever came into the fruition of like the desire of giving in until I was like about to move out of my parents' house. I was around 18, like 17, 18 is when I really, really started to dig deep into my sexual attraction after I'd finished high school. Right. Uh, what I was what I was referring to is there can be that attraction of where you you long for that relationship that, you know, like you have with your best friend. He was what's on your mind all the time. But was there a point of where it changed from being, yes, he's on my mind. He's my best friend. I love him. I care for him. There was there a point where it changed from being that type of attraction into a purely sexual attraction of where I want to do this with him, which is a sexual of nature it was never just purely sexual it was always interlocked with the friendship i think that one of the things that the devil does or the enemy is that it like it mixes in a truth with like a lie and so it mixes in like an, a very natural need with like a very perverse like uh, outcome and so uh yeah i had a very natural need of having another male figure in my life that i could relate to and be friends with but then the, the enemy just perverted that with whatever it was that was going on inside of me um, and wherever these attractions were stemming from, I have no idea. I can try to pinpoint little bits and pieces. Yeah, it's spiritual, also psychological. And yeah, just little by little, I would just like look at his face and I just would think like, man, this is kind of stupid, but I was like, those lips look very kissable. And so I was like, just thinking about stuff like that. And and then it, it, it would get uh, deeper and deeper. And then I was just like, I don't even know what it is to be like with a man, but I really want to kiss this dude. I want to be with him all the time. I want him to hug me. I want to feel him and all those types of things. 
And, and from people that I have counseled with, it it is an involuntary feeling. It's not like you're just sitting around going, as you said, those lips look kissable. It's that that thought is in your head all of a sudden without you having really premeditated that desire. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Because I, I didn't know anything about, you know, being gay. I was, I was not exposed to that whatsoever. I was like a church kid. And um, even in the environment that I was, I never met another gay guy like in my school, people were not out of the closet. If they did have those attractions, it wasn't something that people talked about. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, I know, I know this. I've seen this on TV was during the time that I was growing up. That wasn't on TV that there was no gay couples on TV. That wasn't like shown. And so I feel like I I grew up in like the 1940s, (laughs) but things have just changed so quickly and so fast where we we see it everywhere. Um, But no, that's happened within the last 10 years. Yeah, I, I definitely wasn't premeditated. Just like, oh, these are intrusive thoughts that are happening to me right now. And I just kind of have to accept it as like, these are my thoughts. And I wish honestly that I had a type of mentor figure or someone in my life at that time that would have been able to counsel me through the things that I was feeling and been able to like speak life over me and actually pray for me over those things. But there was no one talking about it. And it's one of the reasons why I'm in ministry today and, and why so many like... I counsel so many people around the world because I'm like, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through where I felt like I had no one to talk to about this. And that would have led me into a decision um, when I was in the shower that I made, like uh, basically accepting that fact, accepting those intrusive thoughts and being like, well, I guess this is me, as opposed to if I had a mentor or someone to help show me things and understand things better, I could have been able maybe to fight that, those intrusive thoughts away. And maybe they wouldn't have taken root uh, and or created strongholds within my life. Maybe they just would have eventually gone away. Yeah. So you use the word intrusive thoughts and, you know, we really start beginning in, in psychology, look at those, uh, you know, with OCD or bipolar, that, that there are these intrusive thoughts. And and what we have to realize is that on the very front end of this, that they are not something that we are producing. It is something that is just intrusive. It, you know, it's, mm-hmm. some, it's not something that's premeditated. It's not something that we have been ruminating about that just comes comes through. It just is something that just happens. And once again, on the psychological side of it, when you are doing counseling with somebody who has these intrusive thoughts, of course, the very first sign to treat them is to admit that you have intrusive thoughts. But in in the day and age that you grew up in, uh, that was very hard to do. And so, and I'm not trying to uh, pigeonhole you in any way, but probably what happened was you shared those intrusive thoughts with somebody who had the same type of intrusive thoughts or that you knew was safe to tell that had those intrusive thoughts. And instead of those intrusive thoughts being dealt with in a healthy way, they were dealt with in an unhealthy way. I didn't know anyone in my life who had anything close to what I was experiencing. So the only people that I could talk to about that was my parents. And I would never admit it to them that I was having those types of feelings. And so I would just talk to them about homosexuals in general and just big and gay people. And I already knew what they thought because of the way that they expressed themselves when they would see a gay person. Like if we were out and they saw someone in that lifestyle, they were just a slurs and call them by names and stuff like that, um, which is like, which is very normal in Cuban culture. They even have specific names for people like that. 
Um, and I would be like, this is a very negative experience. If they know that I'm having those uh, thoughts as well, that they're going to think very negatively about me. And so I didn't have the opportunity to talk to very many people until I came out. And even when I did come out, I felt so isolated. I didn't know anyone else who was going through the same experience that I was. Yeah. One of the tactics that is used against us is the feeling of isolation. And one of the worst things that we can think of is that we would be isolated from our parents, that we could do something and they would feel a certain way towards us. And that that once again leads into unhealthy things for us when uh, one of the hardest things to do besides being honest with ourselves is being honest with people that we love when we fear that they're just going to throw us to the wayside. Um, yeah. So once you came out, what can you t- kind of tell me what how you came out? What transpired the day that you came out? I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Mean Girls. I'm not. <laughs> it's a very popular movie of people my age and and maybe a little bit older too. But in the well, movie, thanks for thanks for implying <laughs> I'm super older than you are. I appreciate no. that. I don't know how old you are. <laughs> My I, sister's like she's older than me, and, and that was like during her time as well. Yeah, so, I'm, and, I'm 38, so I'm I'm much older than you. Yeah, I think maybe your uh, breakout teen movie would have been uh, Jawbreaker, possibly, maybe, possibly, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I was raised very strict Pentecostal, so we didn't get to go watch movies. So. Footloose? <laughs> <laughs> that's way on back there yeah oh is it yeah, okay. way so, on back there <laughs> but i uh there's there's this part of the movie where she uh, basically um she sits down and she has these things called like word vomit and things that just come out of her like vomit just these words and so when i went to tell my mom i knew i made a bet with my friend because my friend was lesbian at the time and she said if you she was bi if you come out to your parents which she's not anymore which is a whole nother thing but uh, women's sexuality and she's like oh if you come out to your parents i'll come out to my parents and um i was like sure so i went home that day and i knew that i had to come out to my mom especially especially my mom because i me and my dad, like I knew that he was not going to take that well. <laughs> and classic macho Cuban dad. And my mom's a little bit more sensitive. And so I got home and it was like word vomit. I was just like, mom, I need to talk to you. And it just came out of me. And then once it came out, it was like, there's no going back. I was like, I know that I have to tell her something. So I'm like, what am I going to tell her? Like, I got to tell her the thing. So I sat her down and I said, um, you know how you told me that you would love me no matter what? And she said, yes. I was like, well... I think I have feelings for my best friend and I think I'm gay. And, and I was like, well, I know I'm gay. <laughs> like I'm having these feelings. And she was like, okay, well, you basically have like two different options. Uh, you can either like reject that in the flesh and all those things. And at this point, it was not something I could like ignore that was happening to me. Like it was, I was so deeply invested in this relationship with my best friend and it wasn't sexual. We never did anything like he was straight, according to him. And so, um, <laughs> air. Yeah, but, I, I, um, <laughs> our, our listeners, of course, can't see that you did air quotes there. So, air quotes, yeah. straight air quotes. <laughs> but I told my mom, and she's just like, well, you can deny yourself and like be faithful to Jesus and just let Jesus be able to help you out. And we can find some ministries and things like that. Or you could just be gay. I'll still love you. I'll still accept you. But just know that I don't approve of that. And, you will go to hell. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to go to hell. 
And my parents are the sweetest people in the world. Like I, they did not have any experience dealing with any of this. They, they were so young when they had kids, but they did a fantastic job with us. And so I don't want anyone to think badly, but it was the truth. You know, she was just like saying the best way that she possibly could. And so I was like, okay, well, let's try to work this thing out and uh, ended up going to Exodus Ministries. And uh, I only went to one of their camps when I was in high school. I think, I think two, two or three of them, but it was, there was a really big one that I went to. And for those of you who don't know, Exodus Ministries is like a ministry for people who are experiencing same-sex attraction and who want to walk away from the gay lifestyle. And uh, it's shut down now. There's a huge documentary about it and on Netflix. It's not a good one if you're a Christian. And yeah, that's basically my coming out story. And I worked on myself during that time, but honestly, I just really wanted to explore now that the truth was out there, I wanted to explore it fully. Like I, I, I didn't want to continue to hide myself. And in this prison that I was feeling for so many years, I always felt different. I always felt like there was something with going on with me. And when I was finally able to vocalize that, it was like, there was no turning back. I was like, freedom to freedom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so would it be fair to coin this, this Exodus ministry as a conversion camp? I don't think people were there trying to convert to being heterosexual. I mean, maybe some people had that attitude. I was there just to get closer to Jesus and to be educated, like how same-sex attraction works. A lot of their workshops were just psychological. Like it was just, you know, how does your brain work in general? And um, and then we had some other workshops that were biblically based and all that stuff. But um, yeah, some people, of course, had the intentions to just go there and they didn't really care about Jesus. They were, I mean, it was Christian, but... But I was there to try to get to know myself a little better. And I was forced, like my parents forced me to go because I told them I didn't want to go. And my mom, she booked the ticket and she booked the flight. And she's like, if you don't go on the flight, like you're going to be in big trouble. And so um, that, that probably meant she was going to ground me or something <laughs> to go with my phone. And so I had to go to this conference. I was, I was made to be there. I didn't really want to be there. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, you've ever seen that video of Naomi Campbell in court. She's yes. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm going to assume, but I'm going to, to let you say it. Uh, there are certain Christian religions uh, that do not believe that homosexuality is a sin. And so from what I'm hearing from you, you do believe that it is. Yeah, I was raised to believe that um, anything that goes against God's word is a sin. And when I saw in the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve. And so to me, what I believed was this was God's divine order from the very beginning. And anything that's outside of his divine order is outside of his plan. And, and if it's outside of his plan, it's technically a sin because it's anything. Sin just means disobedience towards God. And um, if I don't want to do something his way, I'm disobeying him. And so we have like sin just has such a very negative connotation because it's like a very negative word. But um, it's just as simple as like you're just not listening to God in that moment of whatever it is that you're doing. That's it. And yeah, I, I believe that like God didn't want this for my life, but that I had just this crazy like back and forth. It's like, if he doesn't want this, then why is this happening to me? You know, um, if he wants me to be good, then why can't I be good? And, and all those things, I didn't really understand the premise and the doctrine of suffering and uh, maturity and, and all those things of, of really growing in your relationship to the Lord. No one had really explained it to me, or maybe I wasn't understanding it at church. I do believe that it, it, it goes against what God really wants for our lives and still believe that today. 
I don't convict anyone of that. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And if God said, if you have a relationship with the Lord and God says that homosexuality is fine for you, then who am I to say anything else? I mean, personally, he's told me that that's not for my life and for the life of many others. And that's specifically what I read about in his word. But I know a lot of people who are gay and Christian and they claim to have a relationship with God. And so, I mean, I'm not God, so I wouldn't be able to test that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a very firm believer in personal conviction in that what may be wrong for you may not be wrong for me. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Scripture is Scripture, and it still still stands, and there's still a right and there's still a wrong. Even the Bible says to figure out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, so I can't say this is right, and and, and I can't appreciate uh, where you say that it's not not your job to judge that you're not the Holy Spirit, because uh, I think that there's a lot of Christians who who think they are, or that it is their job to proclaim. They take the they take the uh, <clears throat> context of as being the watchman on the wall to the literal, uh, which have turned people away from from Christ as opposed to pointing them towards Christ. To me, it's one of those things that. You know, when I was first starting out in Christianity, I had like a very strong legalism. And so I would pretty much speak about everything and anything. And I just realized how much that turned people away from God. It didn't actually turn anyone towards God. And so what I do nowadays is that I I still am firm on what I believe in scripture and I teach scripture. I love scripture. And it's what I went to school for to get a biblical literature degree and uh, which I didn't finish, but hopefully I will one day. <laughs> I got halfway there. But to me, I just I just tell people what God has done in my life. And if they resonate with that and they're inspired by that, I believe that that's the Holy Spirit speaking to them to be able to do the same thing. And if they don't have the grace to be able to do that or resonate with that or, you know, want to relate to that, then it's just not given to them. You know, to me, it's, it's you know, whatever is given to them, how am I going to force God on someone especially as something so sensitive as someone's sexuality, you know, which can define someone's entire identity. It's like, it, even heterosexuals are like, I don't understand why gay people have to like shove it down people's throats and this stuff. But it's like, they close the door and they do the exact same thing. They're heterosexual. Some, some of them are literally their entire identity is in their marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go on their Instagram, like, here's my wedding picture from four years ago. It's our anniversary. And this is that like your entire identity revolves around your marriage. But yeah. then again, it's like, and then you're speaking against someone else's sexuality being their identity you're doing the exact same thing, but you think it's right because it's heterosexual. Sure. And, and so to me, that's not the, the standard of rightness. The standard of rightness in a Christian walk is focusing on Jesus as being intimate with Jesus because he's our righteousness. It's one of those things that is just so sensitive and there's so many, you know, negativity that I don't want to contribute to that. Uh, I, I just want to share my story and hopefully that resonates with people. And it does, or yeah. because I have, thousands of followers on social media and people message me every day. And they're like, your story speaks to me. And it's not because I'm special. It's just because they're going through the exact same thing that I went through. You know, I'm reminded of the parable in the gospels where Jesus talked about this king set up for this big party, you know, two or back in the Bible days, they knew how to party, you know, they were three, four or five days long. Yeah. Uh, and it says that the king had invited all of these people, but nobody on his invite list showed up. And so he threw the doors of the kingdom open and said, anybody who wants to come can come. 
And he he said, essentially, that's the way salvation is. It's not not to anybody who is on a list that can receive, but for anyone who would want to receive. And so I try to remind myself that I am the uninvited guest. But as the uninvited guest, sometimes I find myself locking the doors on the other uninvited guests because they don't live the same way I do. We have to be very careful, not just, you know, not even in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense, just because somebody isn't like you doesn't mean that you're better than they are. We miss the mark as Christians a lot of times, but we miss the mark a lot just as in humanity of of trying to make ourselves better than somebody because we don't act a certain way or do a certain thing. And whether you want to say that it's karma or whether you want to say that it's uh, God, it, you eventually find out that you're not as good as you thought you were. And uh, God has a way of, of working that out. So you've come out to your parents. Your parents have sent you through Exodus Ministries. You have determined in your heart, I guess, at this point that you don't want to have this same-sex attraction and that you're going to seek God to try to rid yourself of this same-sex attraction. Well, I, I, at this point, it was like, I don't want this, but it's just something I have to accept. And so I was like, I'm going to explore this thing because I'm tired of hiding. And so it, it was more as if I was giving into that. Like I, I was I was actively texting men. I downloaded Grindr at a very young age too, which really messed me up psychologically and um, <laughs> dealing with the trauma of that still. But it, that was something that I was ready to explore because I, for, for so many years, I was just like, tired of, of hiding it away. And so I didn't want it, but I had to accept it. I've had clients tell me before that because they knew it was so bad and they knew that they were, for lack of a better word, sinning anyway, they might as well experienced it to the extreme. Is that kind of how you felt in, in that moment? I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. So to me, I didn't want to go full force. Like I, I love Jesus. I always have since I was a little boy. I loved God. I love the stories. And to me, Jesus was a beautiful man. And so I wanted to have Jesus, but I also wanted to see where this same sex thing was going to go because it wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. So I, I wanted to have that relationship with Jesus and then also find like my perfect man. So to me, I wasn't going to go out there and just like be a hoe and hook up with everybody and just go to the gay clubs. I actually found myself to be very like, I'm like, I don't go to gay clubs. I don't do all that. Like, I'm not that kind of gay. I'm just someone who wants to find his friends charming and get married and have a, a, a classical traditional family. But you give the enemy a hand in the door and he's gonna smash that door to the ground and he's gonna take over your entire house and that's how it was for me i was just like yeah you know i'm just I'm trying to find this one little guy that i like and get married and try to have some type of moral standard in that relationship and that's not the way that things played out insecurities and sexual traumas and you know up to the point that i was like uh, part of like crazy underground sex parties in new york city so Many people don't understand that monogamy is, I'm not going to say unrealistic, but is very rare within the homosexual community. Yes, um, <laughs> extremely. And very, very rare. And, and even in what 
we could categorize as a sub-monogamous, there are still open relationships where there's an understanding. And and even in that sense, you know, we're to cleave unto one and forsake all others. It just seems like you get into this rabbit hole and you just keep going farther and farther than you would ever imagine yourself to be. So then at some point you ended up uh, as a gay stripper. I didn't know that there was a difference between a straight stripper and a gay stripper. I just thought you just took your clothes off, but evidently there's there's a difference here. Yeah, there is a difference. So I, I moved from Miami, left my house when I was 20, and I embarked on my personal training career, which I took a test and passed. And so I was a personal trainer. And I went to uh, Brooklyn to live in Brooklyn. And uh, I needed to pay my rent. I had the opportunity presented to me to just be like a, a go-go boy. Cause there's a like go-go boys, which they don't really take off all their clothes, not like fully nude. And then there's like stripper and they take off their clothes and, and then they did nude parties as well. I'm the type of person that I'm like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it really well. And I like to be the best at everything I do. I'm very competitive. And so I, <laughs> I found the leading party director of New York city. The guy was throwing all the gay big parties and I went to go visit him and I said, I want to be a dancer for your parties. And he was like, all right, let me take a look at you. And he like basically told me to strip completely naked, looked at me, looked at my body and was like, all right, okay, cool. Like you're, you're fine. You can, you can strip for me and my parties. And then I would just do like underwear. But then I, there was a point where I was so low and just really didn't value myself and, you know, sin. And I, and then I did the fully nude party, barely made any money. It was so devastating. And I was, it was just a really dark place of my life. You mentioned that you, you did this, this nude show. Uh, I think that's how you, you called it. And you didn't make very much money and you felt like the lowest of lows. Why do you think that was? Well, I was promised because I didn't feel comfortable doing fully nude. And um, there's a lot that goes behind that. And, and those parties get crazy. And so I, which is not comfortable, but I was presented with that option. They're like, you should do it. And if you don't do this party, then like, we're going to stop booking you and all that stuff. So there's peer pressure and manipulation. And then also they told me that I was going to make like a lot of money that night. Um, but what they failed to tell me was that you're only going to make money if you do more than just strip nude, you know, that you do other stuff. And I definitely wasn't doing that. I'm not like a, I wasn't a prostitute and there are other boys who did more, <laughs> but I was not one of them. And so when I did that party, I made like practically the same that if I would have just done a regular party without having to strip nude. And I felt so awful because it was almost like, what am I doing with my life? Like, this is just like, I was, I was putting on a different name. I was putting on different uh, like clothes. I was, I created a character for myself and it was like, I'm only likable when my body is being shown. Like the, the only thing that is likable to me is if I have a fit body and if somebody can use that fit body and if we don't really think about that very often, but that will do horrible things to your brain like you'll be you're gonna walk away from that situation feeling like you are nothing to no one so I remember the next morning I was riding my bike on my way to work and I was just crying like I was just crying 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 and just so depressed because I'm like 
I don't know who I am. I don't know what my worth is. I don't know what my value is. And why am I doing this? Why does no one care about me? Like, is this all I am? Just a body or a pretty face or, or whatever someone to sleep with. And that's how it felt in the gay world, honestly. It, many times you wouldn't get any attention from anyone unless you did have a fit body. Or if your grinder photo was your chest and your abs and all that stuff. And it was so shallow. And the times that you did meet people who were intelligent, that, that there was a whole nother problem with that. It was like, elitism if you're not rich or if you don't have this or if you don't have that house or that apartment or if you don't live in the upper west side you know this is a whole nother demon there but yeah i i just felt i felt awful about myself i and well, as you can tell i've no nobody's ever wanted me for my body and my physical appearance however uh there have been times where people only wanted me because i could help them with certain things and even in those points and times, it, it took me to a very dark place as to you don't like me, you like what I do for you. And I think that's probably similar to what you're talking about there is that it's not yes. that they want you, it's what they want what you can do for them. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, it kind of becomes self-deprecating of who am I really? You know, who am I a paycheck to you? Uh, am I a fantasy to you? But at the end of the day, who are you? You know, and, and it gets to a point of where we don't even know who we are, let alone as as a, a man or a woman or a member of society. Uh, we get to this deep, dark place of where we question our very existence. Yeah, definitely. I can relate to that. And there's so many people in this world who can relate to that as well. It's just like Justin Bieber. He has a whole song about it, about his dad leaving him and um, talking about how he had to become the best musician that he possibly could be because it's like that was the only time when people liked him is when he was singing and and so he learned drums and guitar and piano and he sang and then he was discovered. You know, it's we just work. Uh, because we think that we can earn people's love by the things we can do for them. And so that transpires sexually or through, through instruments or through knowledge. And yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with God, because I had nothing to offer to him and he still wanted me. Sure. You know, the thing about that is, is when we look at this from a psychological standpoint, we really have to understand that if people only want me because, then they really don't want me. That brings in a whole new level of trauma, too, for us to to come to those terms. But nine times out of the ten, the problem really is, is that you don't want you, that that you don't like the person that you've become and, and that you really don't know who you are and you've got to refine yourself. But a lot of times when we don't use mental health professionals or we don't use some kind of spiritual leadership we discover ourselves in something else that may be just as unhealthy as what we found ourselves to begin with. Now, I'm going to use the term come to Jesus meeting, even though that was kind of literally what happened. At what point did you say, okay, this is not who I am. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. At what, what was that point like for you, the lowest of lows, when you got to that, that point? I think exploring everything that I wanted to do and trying, trying to do everything that I wanted to do. And so I had big dreams of, of being an actor and musician and I went to school for theater. And, and so when I moved to New York, 
I tried to do that a little bit, but it was like really hard to keep up with my bills and stuff. And I was doing the whole go-go dancing thing. And, and so I left New York, got a job on a cruise ship and I was doing entertainment on the cruise ship, but doing bingo and all that stuff and karaoke. And I found that exciting, but it wasn't fulfilling me. And then in my relationships too, it was just, uh, it was the same thing over and over and over. And it had a lot to do with what you were saying. It was, I didn't really love myself. <laughs> I don't think I could, I couldn't even stand to be alone just with me. You know, I was like, I mean, I had to be alone most times because I was homeschooled. And one of those things where it was just like, I didn't, I didn't really like, or really didn't understand who I was. And, um, and you could clearly see that because I thought I needed someone else to complete me. And so I, I thought I was like the missing puzzle piece to like another puzzle piece. And in terms, I didn't see myself as fully whole. And so when I was in Australia on that cruise ship job, I didn't like it, didn't fulfill me. My relationships didn't fulfill me either. Nothing was fulfilling me. Nothing was making me happy. I've had so many opportunities. And um, as an American, I can like start a business or I can, you know, I there's more that I can do. But when I got to Miami, I just got so depressed and I was like living with my parents again. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> and so I, um, I just got really, really, really sad and depressed. And, um, and I became, I was, I had struggled with suicidal thoughts, like a lot throughout my life. And so I, I had a night where I was just very, like, I was, I was experiencing a lot of those suicidal thoughts. It was interesting because that was the chance that the devil had to basically like take me down once and for all. And yeah, I was like, well, I've kind of lived this life and it hasn't really made me happy and there's not really a point to living anymore. And the only point that I'd see would be to living would is to give God a chance or an opportunity, you know, to show me that he's real. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm set. Like I've done it all. Like there's nothing I haven't already done or accomplished or seen. And I was like, I think I'm good. Like I want to earn, I want to end this life on my own terms. And then I was like, but before I do that, I want to make sure that God is real. And if, if, if he's real, like, I, I know I can't do that. I can't end my life because that would, that would be wrong um, to take away the purposes that he has for me and, and plans that he has for my life. So um, I just reached out to him in my last moments and I told him that I wanted to know if he was real and for him to show me if he was real. And if he didn't show me that I was going to kill myself the next day because I was like, I'm done with this life. <laughs> and then the next day I woke up and I felt completely different than I did the day before. And that doesn't happen. Usually when you deal with depression, like you wake up the next day, like still depressed, but I felt like someone had shot me with steroids. That's just the only term that I have for that. It literally felt like a high and I'm not bipolar. So I don't have highs. <laughs> like I just always had lows. <laughs> and so I was like, I know this is why am I so happy? Why am I so excited about life right now? And I was ready to take on the day. And I was like, this is God. Like, this is God showing me that he's on my side and he He loves me. And so I dedicated my life to him. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to kill myself. I want you to have my life, God, instead. And um, and yeah, and, and from there began the journey of him showing me who he was. I think it's important for us to note, though, at this point, that just because you surrendered your life to God, that same-sex attraction did not go away. No, I was I wasn't thinking about that at the moment. I mean, to me, it was one of those things. I'm like, well, if he saves me, it's because he loves me, and so if he loves me, like, I mean, he's got to love everything that's in me, you know. And it was later on in that prayer, I actually told him, Lord, if 
if you have a problem with the same sex attraction thing, like if this is keeping me from you in some way, like you're going to have to be the one to tell me that. And I really didn't stress it at all. Like I was just like, I'm going to try to live this life with you, God. And I'm not going to change much about my life. Like, I'm just going to go to church, pick up my Bible, pray, have intimacy with you. But if this gay thing is something you don't want me to do, you don't want me to date men anymore, then you need to let me know. And he did let me know. Three months later, um, when I was in a sexual encounter with a man, like the Holy Spirit convicted me in the middle of the act, convicted me. And I was like, I can't do this. And I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, from there, I, I vowed myself to be abstinent. And of course, I've had slip ups and made mistakes. For the first six months, I didn't make a single mistake. Like he was with me. And that to me was a sign of God's power because there's no way. How do you go from having sex every single week and like basically being a sex addict to like six months, no sex? Wait, you, did you just did you just use the word sex addict and sex every single week together? Because you know, some of the people that I have counseled with that, and they're, I wouldn't label them as sex addicts, but more of bipolar of where they get hypersexual. I'm talking three or four partners a day. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't that bad, <laughs> but I definitely had a new partner every single week or every two weeks, you know, cause it was just accessible. So yeah, I wasn't so much of a sex addict. Really. I think I was more of an intimate addict. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted intimacy from people. I want to be close to somebody. Yeah. I think that's what I shouldn't say most, and and I really shouldn't generalize here because I don't, I've not experienced what you've experienced. I can only try to put together what I have have seen through other people, but I think that within the hookup culture, if you will, whether it be hetero or homosexual, it's not so much the act as much as it is the longing for intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so people do things that are just so out of character even for them because they're looking forward to that intimacy where I I had a client who was uh, homosexual and not to get into too graphic detail, he, he was on the receiving end and he would hook up with guys that that's all they wanted to do. They didn't want to cuddle. They didn't want to kiss. They didn't want to foreplay. All they wanted to do was to use him in that way. And while he did it at first because he enjoyed it and he wanted somebody to be there with him and enjoy him, ultimately it led for him to be more depressed because it wasn't intimate. It was he was being used. And so I think that, once again, whether you are in the hetero or the homosexual hookup culture, it's not so much that you're longing to, can a Baptist preacher say get off? It's not so much that you're longing to get off as much as it is that you want that connection, that intimacy with somebody. But eventually, at the end of the day, you realize that they didn't want you. They wanted what you could do for them which leaves you in a very low place. Well, some of them, because I met some guys who, and they did not want intimacy. They wanted to get off <laughs> and, and several times with several different people. And, you know, to them, it was nothing about the other person. And it was just about the act itself, but they were getting something out of that mm-hmm. interaction. But I definitely was one of those people that I was looking for that 
mental connection, spiritual connection, like, and, and physical connection with that individual. And to me, it wasn't about the act. I sometimes didn't even want to do it, but it was the pressure and also just hormonal. And, uh, and the pressure, so, yeah, so I, the pressure that if you didn't do it, that you wouldn't have that intimacy that you enjoyed being able to talk and have have somewhat of a normal relationship. If you did not provide, if I didn't do it, they would just leave. Right. Like they would. That was the only thing that they were interested. In. And to me, I I met more guys who were just interested in the act than I was ever made more met more guys who were interested in the intimacy of uh, like really getting to know someone 70% are just like, I just, I need this now. I need to get off now. Right. Mm -hmm. And then 20% were people who actually wanted to have a conversation and, and, and intimacy. That was, that was the last time that I, I was with a man, um, but not at the time. And then it led me on like this just abstinence journey. And I was able to figure out like, who I was outside of all that. So, so now moving into a ministry, kind of tell me what what your purpose in ministry is. Well, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. When I first came to Christ, I thought I was going to like continue to be a personal trainer, and I would I had plans to open up a gym and to continue my business as a personal trainer. And the Lord really called me into ministry at the time i didn't even know what ministry was I, I didn't have a name for that like i i didn't know that was ministry but he was basically telling me to be there for other people who had this issue and then also to bring reconciliation in the environment that i live in miami and in florida the men there's probably maybe around 10 percent of men in 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 church and in the activities and all the stuff, it's like, it's just women, like <laughs> it's just women. <laughs> so it's like, um, I never saw like a hunger of men in the church leading and doing it. It was, it was always just women. So I felt like the men needed to really rise up because I don't know if you've read about this, possibly have, uh, in like psychologically, like Christianity is more of a women's religion than it is a man's religion Yeah, because of the sitting around the submission and uh, yeah, the submission. And then not only that, but just like praying, it's like all these things are like more towards women's characteristics and uh, femininity than it is towards men. Men like to move and they like to be rough and they like to be tested and you know, all this stuff. And you can't really find any of those types of things in Christianity. It's more easier for a woman to come to Christ than it is for a man. And so I was like, thinking about all these things and the Lord told me to do a men's Bible study and to inspire heterosexual men, not even homosexual men, that if I could be hungry for the Lord, then they certainly could be hungry for the Lord. And then that just kind of, the Lord just led me away from personal training. He took away all my clients. Like I was praying about it and I was like, Lord, you know, you lead me wherever you want to lead me. And he was like, all right, well, I'm just going to take away your source of income. I was like, not that, <laughs> like bring that back. <laughs> and he just told me, I want you to be full-time ministry. And I had a sit down conversation. The first time I heard that word, I was explaining to someone, oh yeah, I'm doing Bible studies. I'm doing beach night evangelisms and all that sort of stuff. And the girl sat down and she's like, oh, so you have a ministry. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> I was like, I, I just thought I was being a good Christian. <laughs> like, because that's what I read in the Bible. And so she was like, no, you have a ministry. And I was, and she's like, you can use that word. And I was like, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> so that was like the beginning of my ministry. And I, I had a word. Well, I had like a name for it, which is United 12. And I've changed that name now. because Now I'm, I'm all online. I barely do any stuff in person. Yeah. It led me down this road of just um, 
really evangelism and uh, bringing hunger to people's hearts for for Jesus and and a study of the word. And that wasn't really too successful. I had a lot of uh, like my Bible studies and nobody ever wanted to come. And I was always chasing people down and being like, guys, come to this prayer meeting or let's do this. You know, it was, it was exhausting all the time. It was like the hunger was not there until the pandemic happened. And when the pandemic happened, uh, the Lord, I was basically, I was like, I'm done with ministry. Like God, like, I'm like, I'm not gonna, this is useless. I've been doing this for three years and I haven't touched anyone or anything. <laughs> like, like it's, it's just been people coming and going and receiving and then nothing happening. There's no fruits to show from my ministry of three years. And I'm in debt too. I was like super in debt from putting on these events and Bible studies and all that stuff without a church backing me up or anything. I've never been much of a church goer, by the way. I like, like traditional Sunday, like it doesn't fit with me and my personality, like, as you can tell. So um, even though I did try to look for churches and stuff, but um, I just didn't really fit in. And when the pandemic happened, the Lord told me, I want you to be a good steward to the things that I've given you online. And at the time, I think I had like maybe like a hundred or 200 subscribers on my YouTube. Like no, I didn't have any followers, like nothing. And he was just like, just be faithful and make content, you know, make YouTube videos and do your podcast. And I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring what needs to be brought the Lord. in just a week of him giving me that word, um, he exploded my ministry online. My video went viral and I got from 100, 200 subscribers to 14,000. And then that led me on a journey of just doing online ministry to the point now I have a, an audience of over 70,000 people online and I am so blessed and so happy. It's, it's my passion. So I didn't know I would end up here. I don't even know where I'm going. Never had a plan. I just am obedient to his word. How do you, and, and probably more so in the beginning than now, because uh, your content is so accessible, but when you first began in what you now know to be ministry, how did you combat the, the people who knew about your past and same-sex attraction that then didn't want to have anything to do with you or anything that you had to offer? I think in the beginning it was hard because I was so legalistic and I'm glad the Lord actually took me through a failed ministry to start a successful ministry because I got to do all of my mistakes away from the public eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I got to the public eye, I was like, I know better than this. <laughs> so I won't make that mistake anymore. Yeah, it was hard because in the beginning I wanted so badly for them to experience what I was experiencing. And uh, I didn't really know how to communicate that very well, but I lost a lot of friends. And honestly, it was my, my own fault. It was really my own fault. I don't think that if you live a righteous life, it actually pulls people away from you. I think if you live a righteous life, it'll pull people towards you. If you're, if you're really loving people, I mean, it's who's going to reject someone who's so full of love, you know? I mean, they will, if they are, obviously there's a spiritual element to that too, that like the world's going to hate us no matter what. Uh, they hated Jesus. Jesus was a really popular man mm-hmm. <laughs> before he was crucified. Even up until the week he was crucified, he was very popular. Yeah. They screamed at the gates of the city for him to come in. You know, he was very well liked. It wasn't up until he said that he was the son of God, that he wasn't, you know, liked anymore. And, and when they had Trump, that was my own fault. People kind of, they stayed away from me because I was that I was the Bible thumper. I was like, these are the verses and this is this. And I wanted to prove my own point as opposed to now. I have more gay friends now than I did back then because I'm much more accepting and tolerant of their lifestyle 
but I'm not affirming. And that's very different. They know where I stand. I mean, how could you not? You look on my page, I'm like fully like showing who I am and my story. Yeah, I see two I rainbows in. just behind you. Yeah, exactly. It's, this rainbow to me is God's promise. And so when I have interactions with other people now, it's different than when I did before. And, and I'm glad that I am different because uh, I can actually do more good work being in these gay and lesbian friends' lives than I can just being a Bible thumper and just being like, you got to follow God. Cause at the end of the day, I'm not Holy Spirit. I'm only Holy Spirit can do that. Uh, all I can do is just love them, love them so good that they're like, um, I want to know this Jesus. Like you love me like nobody else loves me. So how am I going to love them if they're like far away from me? Yeah. And, and I think that's where we get it wrong. So many of the times that we forget the, the greatest of all these is love. Uh, and if mm -hmm. you don't have love, you don't have anything. So do you still consider yourself to be a homosexual, just a celibate homosexual, or how do you identify? I identify as a child of God. So I, there's that side B movement um, that's people who say I'm a gay Christian. And what they really mean is that they're a gay celibate Christian. I don't like labels. I never have liked labels. Even if it's to encourage someone else to feel comfortable I don't feel like I have to put a label on to make someone else comfortable. I identify as being a child of the king, you know, as part of being a, a part of a royal priesthood. If you understand that, great. If you don't understand that, does it really matter? I am celibate. I do have same-sex attraction, but those things are not my identity. And they're so far from my identity because my identity is in Christ. And my identity is something that can't even be seen right now. It's um, in accordance to the invisible. Right. You're, you're probably not old enough to remember who Minnie Pearl is. Do you remember cousin Minnie Pearl? She no. she was on uh, the Grand Ole Opry. She had the big straw hat that still had the price tag hanging down from it. And, <laughs> and she made this statement one time. She said, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean that you cannot look in the refrigerator. And I think that a lot of times... That applies to people in your circumstance of, yes, that same-sex attraction is still there. And yes, I do sometimes still look in the refrigerator, but I don't take it out and eat. I shut the refrigerator door and I go back to, to what I know I'm supposed to be disciplined to do. But I, I think that, man, there's so much hate when it comes to not just Christianity, but when it comes to Christianity paired with same-sex attraction, that people are so, I don't even want to hear it. You know, I don't want to hear it. God can't use you because you've done this or you've done that. And, you know, I think about our mutual friend, uh, Joshua Broom, who, uh, I mean— I love Joshua. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's the best. Where his sin is still on display, you know, you could you could find it to where things that I have done in the past, uh, things that you have done in the past couldn't be as easily accessible. But God uses us in in different ways. Even as a therapist, um, you know, sometimes I have to do therapy with people, and they have to say to me, "I don't want to talk to the preacher. I want to talk to Brian." And what what that says to me is that they don't want the aspect of religion or dogma, that condemnation to, to be placed on what they're about to tell me. And I'm like, look, I have no right to judge you. If you knew some of the things I've done in my life, you wouldn't be worried about telling me anything you're about to tell me. And I think that we all need to realize that 
every single one of us have a chapter in our book that we don't want read out loud. Uh, some of us are not so fortunate that that chapter isn't published somewhere with a lot of access. But we have to be very careful. And I, I want to state here that not just as Christians, but as humans in humanity, we have to be careful about passing judgment on someone else. I, I don't know how many times I've uh, made a TikTok and, and said, hey, I just want you to know if nobody else has told you today that you're important, you're loved, you're valuable, you're needed, and you're wanted. And how many times I would get messages back that said, I needed to hear that today because this happened. I did a live stream on, uh, is it Omegle? Do you know what Omegle is? Omegle. Yeah. yeah. I did a live stream on Omegle, and literally this guy popped up, and he had a gun in his hand, and he was about to kill himself. Just said, I was going to do it live here. Oh, my god. I said to him, you know, do you think it's just a coincidence that I would be the person that popped up here? Of all the millions of people that could have been. Now, had I been unkind to him, there's no telling what could have happened. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know anything about me. But our words have so much power. They just have so much power. And we can speak life into people and not even realize we're speaking life into people. And and on the flip side of that, we can speak darkness and death and depression into people and not realize we're doing that either. And so, you know, one thing that, that I try to remember is Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And if we're all supposed to be Christ-like, then that means that anybody who wants to come to him, we're not to hinder them in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And so I can appreciate you and what you're doing and and to know that it must be incredibly hard for you at times to continue to push through and to do what what you know is right not just in ministry um because trust me in what i do which is you know what i do here with doc talks and and what i do on, on social media is very mild but there are people who i had a transgender person to talk about their their transition and i got hate from preacher friends of mine that have been that said you're just coddling the sinner and this abominable person and i'm like we're supposed to love them you know we're supposed to love them and and i think that's as christians we forget that we're supposed to love them and so uh, with me getting that kind of hate, I'm sure that you get that sort of response too a lot of times. How do you deal with that the best way? When I came to Christ, I was fully empty. And God can use an empty vessel, mm -hmm. but God cannot use a full, like a full vessel. You're already full. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's nothing for him to pour into. And so since I was so fully empty, he can use me to the max and a lot of what would affect other people doesn't affect me not because i was special actually the opposite i was so fully empty <laughs> so fully not special <laughs> that um not filled with anything at all <laughs> that he was like i can i can work with this one something that my ministry is built on is transparency honesty and um and i'm just honest and i'm trans transparent i don't i don't have a problem with people judging me or shaming me or making me feel bad for who I am. Does it hurt? Yeah. But that's why he says, come to me all who are heavy laden and you will find rest. And so I'm Samuel's dead. Like the old Samuel, he died and he continues to die. 
And it's like Catherine Coleman. It's one of my favorite audio bits from her. She did like a sermon and she said, I can remember the day when Catherine Coleman died. She remembers a date when Catherine Coleman died, the location of when she died, and when the new Catherine Coleman lived, which is the one that was filled by the spirit. And so a lot of what would affect people doesn't affect me because Samuel's dead. So he doesn't have any feelings. And this new one that lives is the one that is filled with the spirit of God. And when you're filled with the spirit, do you feel condemnation? No. Do you feel uh, shame and guilt? No, that's not from, that's not from God. All that you can feel is security, peace, hope, faith, love. He's still my everything. He was my everything. He's still my everything. And he will continue to be my everything. I read RuPaul's book. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but he has a book. It's, it's like a picture book. And he says, don't take life so seriously. And you know, like it's RuPaul. He's like a, this gay icon. But there is some truth to that. It's like, you're, you shouldn't take th- this life so seriously. You know, the only thing that you really got to take serious is your relationship to the Lord. Everything else is just so fleeting and uh, opinions and ministries and money and all these things are just going to go one day, but he remains. And so his opinion is the only one that matters. Yeah. I, I saw this quote not long ago, and I don't, I don't remember who said it. You may, have, you may have seen it as well. And it said, reminding me of my past is like breaking into a house that I used to live in. I don't live there anymore. And, you know, we really do have to think about that as to look how far we've come. Look how far Christianity or our, our, the Lord or whatever it is that, that you draw strength from where it has brought you to. I can say I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the ministry that, that you are offering to people. I know that it cannot be easy. I know that it, some days it's scary. Uh, I can tell you as a minister— some days it's very lonely. It's really hard. I have to surround myself with people who are in ministry that understand that and that I can just say, hey, this is what's going on today. And they keep me grounded. They keep me rooted and uh, they keep me accountable. So I appreciate you doing that. Um, as we're wrapping up here, if there was one message that you could give to someone today who may be like you were at 17, 18, 19 years old, who has come to this realization that that they do have same-sex attraction and that they might be homosexual and they're depressed or maybe even considering suicide, as you said at, at one point in your story, what would your words to them be? There's, a, there's this campaign that ran in like the early 2000s and it was for LGBTQ, like youth. And their slogan was, it gets better. I would tell you, it doesn't get any better. The grass is not greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. That, that is very true. It says in Hebrews, actually, that the Lord is the one who waters, that he's the one who sends rain and blessing upon the earth. And so um, it doesn't get any better. You may think that if you find that perfect man, or if you have the perfect relationship, or if you explore yourself fully to the max, that you're finally going to be happy. You won't be. I've been there. You won't be happy. Um, If you need to do that, do that. I learned with the hard knocks. Um, The Lord will be patient. Ask him to be with you on that journey. He most certainly will. But if you have the opportunity to go to him and to water yourself and your land with his words and in relationship with him, you should do so now uh, so that you don't have to go through what I went through. And if you're listening to my story, 
that you don't have to repeat the mistakes that I've made because there are things I'm still working out from those mistakes that just don't go away very easily. All right, Samuel, I appreciate you being on Doc Talks today. And uh, tell tell our listeners where they could find you at. I have a website, samuelabrahamperez.com. It has pretty much all the information where you would need to find me, all of my social media links. But I'm on Instagram as Samuel Abraham P. And um, same thing, Facebook. You can find my Facebook page on there. But everything's on my website, samuelabrahamperez.com. And also, if you like my ministry, you've been inspired by something that I said on today's podcast, you can feel free to uh, donate to my ministry there. Um, that's how I'm able to even do podcasts like these. So I also have a Discord um, that's not on my website. So if you're into Discords, it's more for the younger generation. Uh, you can find the link to that on any of my YouTube videos and also in the link of my bio of Instagram. But uh, I'm pretty much on any social media you can think of. So <laughs> just type in Samuel Abraham Perez and I'm, I'm sure to come up. <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll put all that information in the description of this podcast as well. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media links are there at the bottom of my page. And we thank you for listening today. Samuel, once again, it's great to have you. I appreciate you uh, for being, being willing to share your story and being vulnerable for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I appreciate you and I commend you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. Be sure to check out our other podcasts on the Be Frank Network at BeFrankNetwork.com. Thank you. And we will see you soon. Goodbye.